Hello, my name is Phuong Huang, and I'm a student project manager at the Clock Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on our event, Counting Lost Stars, Fiction Inspired by History. And I'm here today with Kim Van Akamata, New York Times bestselling author. Welcome, Dr. Kim Van Akamata. Well, oh, thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. Let us begin with your inspiration for the book. In your talk, you told us that part of the inspiration for this book was your father's experience under the Nazis' occupation in the Netherlands. Were there any other sources of inspiration for Counting Lost Stars? I had a couple of nonfiction sources that were really inspiring as far as some of the main content of the book. So uh, there's a book titled IBM and the Holocaust by Edwin Black. And that was a big inspiration as far as educating me on the use of hollow earth computers during World War II, particularly uh, by the Nazis to organize the Holocaust. Another source that was really important by Anne Fessler, a book called The Girls Who Went Away, which was a series of interviews with women who in the 1960s and 70s had been pretty much coerced into giving up their their children for adoption. Young women who were not married were funneled into a system of unwed mothers' homes. That was a really important source. Uh, lots of little things ended up being inspirations, visiting in the Netherlands, having a conversation with my aunt Petronelle, who was in her late 80s, and her sharing again her experiences. So a lot of things I've read, places I've been, people I've talked to, and have all come together. Where does the book title come from? Well, the book title itself was a collaboration with my editor, Tessa Woodward at William Morrow, uh, HarperCollins imprint. I'd been thinking about lots of different kinds of titles and to find a title where we got the concept of counting. I thought a lot about the fantastic title for Hidden Figures, the nonfiction book about the women who worked on the space program, and a title that can convey in just a couple of words a sense of what the book is about. And so to, to say counting lost stars, for me, it really evokes the counting of the computers and, all, and to say lost stars, the Jewish people lost to the Holocaust, so many people lost to the Holocaust, but also uh, a sense of the stars as being like your fate in, uh, there's a saying in Yiddish, uh, it's, it's fated or it's preordained. Um, and that idea comes into play in the novel in the way the characters meet and work together and help each other. The book describes the Hollerith punch card computers and other means of technology, which are no longer well known. What inspired you to write about information technology in the last century? Information technology, strangely, has always really interested me. Maybe it's not that strange. I, I guess we think of people who are interested more in the humanities. You and I talked about this. Um, as being separate from uh, the sciences, especially data sciences. But I've always been really interested in the idea of technology at a sort of philosophical conceptual level. So one of the readings that was influential for me when I was in grad school was Heidegger's The Question Concerning Technology. 
And I read it in translation and I never really pursued a philosophy degree or anything like that. But I found his way of conceiving of the effect technology has on people really influential because he talks about technology, the essential nature of technology is being about efficiency. He uses the, in English, it's translated as ordered for use that we subject to a kind of technological understanding become organized in the way that's most efficient for technology to then make use of it. And that way of thinking changes how we see the whole world. You know, we talk about natural resources. We talk about human resources. We talk about things that can be used and how to best use them. And it really made me think about, we get so caught up in our technological ways of seeing the world that it seems natural to say something like, natural resources. We see the world, the planet, the earth, everything living on it as a resource to be used somehow. And um, and that's a very specific way of thinking. And it's not the only way of thinking. It just becomes so all-encompassing that we we forget to question it at all. And so by illustrating the way that information technology was used to organize something as sort of inconceivably monstrous and horrible as genocide, I think it gives an opportunity to see that if you apply the efficiency of technology to something, it has an effect. I can't say computers are evil, but they have an essential nature to make whatever they're applied to exponentially more efficient and so by applying it to something like genocide, it became more efficient. And I think it's useful to remember that technology in itself is not neutral, that it, it has this effect on whatever we apply it to. Did you meet any difficulties while doing your research? It was personally, emotionally, researching those aspects of the Holocaust was difficult for me. I felt a really strong obligation to make sure that my facts were correct. So in the novel, a lot of it is fictional. And then there are things that are fictionalized. But when you read about the transports, for instance, from Camp Westerbork, the transit camp in the Netherlands to Auschwitz or Sobibor or Bergen-Belsen, those are all accurate. And there's a Vad Yashem has a database called uh, Transports to Extinction that has cataloged every transport and aggregated any testimony around that, the dates, the route, the number of people, the number of known survivors. So I really felt a strong obligation to get things like that correct, but it was very emotionally difficult to kind of dwell in that space, even though these are online databases, so I'm safely at home, but it was also during the pandemic lockdown when I was really stressed and scared. And so all of that kind of combined to, to make it personally difficult. I really like how you wrote the book through two different timelines between the 1940s and the 1960s and how the two storylines finally intersect. Mm -hmm. What was your intent behind writing from both Rita's and Cornelia's perspectives? I like structuring novels in a way that have some sort of uh, structural uh, tension. 
So I've done another two perspective novel, my second novel, Bachelor Girl. There were two main protagonists, each speaking in the first person, and they alternated. And they were in relationship with each other and in relationship with the same characters, but they had different experiences. So in that, in Bachelor Girl, by juxtaposing those two, I could propel the same narrative forward because the two characters were often sort of doing things together, but then sometimes they knew things the other one didn't. And the reader could then know more than either one character. In my first novel, Orphan Number 8, it followed one main protagonist. In some of the chapters, she was very young. We met Rachel Rabinowitz when she was, I think, four years old or six years old. And I didn't want to write in the voice of a six-year-old. So the chapters where she's a child, I wrote in the third person so that as a a narrator, I could describe things and know a little bit more than the character. And occasionally I, I shifted into like a third person omniscience. We could see Rachel from other points of view. But then the rest of the book is Rachel as an adult. And those chapters I wrote in the first person. So Rachel is speaking for herself and they alternate and then the childhood story is informing the adult story until you see how they match up. In that, I thought it was, it also spoke to sort of the theme of Orphan Number Eight, that as a child, kids in the orphanage who had no real agency, and then as an adult, when she has agency, it, it's different. And so the point of view goes with that. So long story short, in Counting Lost Stars, the two storylines are completely different, different characters, different time periods, different continents. We have 1960s New York City, as you said, we have 1940s in the Netherlands. And I really, one of the things I wanted to show was how history is present and it's not over in the past, that it carries over, it carries across continents, it carries across time. And I also thought that structurally it, it creates a tension for the reader when you have two very different stories. So at the first, when I don't know what it was like for you when you started reading it, if you were wondering how are these stories ever going to match up? And there's a point, there's a chapter towards the end where all of a sudden we've had Cornelia Vogel, and we've had Rita Klein back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden, instead of the next Cornelia chapter, you get a chapter that's called The Blom Report. And it's written by Edith Silver, who's an aid worker who worked in a displaced person camp, who is describing what she discovered at Bergen-Belsen. And I don't really know like where that came from for me. I think part of it was because I didn't want to set a dramatic chapter in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, I wanted to start making a bridge. I, that, that was the point at which we left the 1940s timeline behind and we move into the 1960s timeline. So the, the report, although it was written in the 1940s, is discovered in the 1960s. And so this is how the timelines begin to converge. And I remember my editor saying, you know, you have this one chapter from a different character's point of view what do you think about that? I said, I, I like it. For me, it was like a hinge. It was the hinge that folded the one story into the other. Thank you. Not many people have heard of the baby scoop era as part of American history, and readers are introduced to the era through Rita's life story. Can you tell me more about why you chose to include the baby scoop era in your book? 
Well, when I was thinking about the the character, Rita Klein is sort of the same age that my mother was at that time. Um, my mom married young and had me when she was just 20 years old. But if she'd been unmarried, she probably would have been funneled into that system of unwed mother's homes and coerced adoptions. And so it was really interesting to me. And Rita doesn't have agency. She doesn't get to make her own decisions. These things are sort of made for her. So this development in a character from having no agency to finding the strength to make her own decisions was really important for me to track. But I also wanted to show that it wasn't just like her internal courage or bravery that she needed people around her to support her that in the and she didn't get that when she told her parents I'm pregnant she did not get that from them she didn't get that from anyone else around her and so by the end of the novel when she has developed her own character and also entered into relationship with people who can give her that courage and support she's able then to have the agency to make her own decision. And that was really the thing. It wasn't that it would be right or wrong, whether she kept her child or or surrendered her child for adoption, that that, that wasn't the value judgment at all. It was for Rita Klein as a character to have the agency to make her own decision about it. In the end, Rita found her happy ending with her partner, but Cornelia never got her life back after being sent to labor camp. Mm. And why not give a happy ending to both of your characters? I think Cornelia does. So if you're listening to this and haven't read the book, maybe like cover your ears for a moment. No, I feel like so when we first met Cornelia, she's falling in love with her neighbor, Leah, and it's very romantic and it's very passionate and and they're young. And that love gives Cornelia a lot of courage to to act. But I also thought a lot about survivor's guilt and the experience that she went through. And I thought about how does that sort of young love relationship survive, you know, what the the characters experienced in the meantime. And then one of the research sources I was looking at, there was a survivor named Rudolf Martenheim who wrote this amazing document that's at the Center for Jewish History, which informed some of my discussion about the punch cards, because as a prisoner in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, he was assigned to work with these machines. He survived, his wife survived, his daughter survived. And yet, as I was interested in him as an individual, and I researched more about what happened to him after he wrote this memoir that's at the archive, I learned that by the time he immigrated to the United States, he was divorced. They survive everything, and yet their marriage doesn't survive. And I thought, you know, that makes sense to me. So the relationship between Leah and Cornelia does not survive. And yet at the end of the book, Cornelia and Edith have found each other in New York and I see a future for them together. So I do think of that as a happy ending. Do you have any ideas for a future book or project? I'm currently writing a book now. It's a novel uh, set on Monhegan Island in Maine, which is an artist colony off the coast of Maine. Not a fancy, posh place at all. Pretty rustic, even today. They have electricity now. They didn't until the 1980s. But it's been an artist retreat for decades and decades. And it's a wonderful setting 
and I'm writing a story about a woman artist um, coming up, she's born in 1900, so through the 1930s into the 1950s, and we follow her all the way to 1971. And I'm very inspired by the many histories of a ta talented, accomplished women artists who did not get the recognition that many male artists got and whose careers never sort of took off in the same way that many male artists were able to accomplish. And often the male artists were able to accomplish a lot and have their careers because of the women who supported them and who were then kind of turned into a footnote. You know, she was his wife, she was his girlfriend, instead of she was as good an artist, if not better than he was, but he sucked up all the energy and attention in the room and there was nothing left for her. And so that's that's kind of the inspiration for my character. So I'm having a good time writing it and I'm learning a lot about completely different things now. As we're concluding this interview, is there anything you want to highlight that I didn't cover? I think one of the things that I've been talking about with people is the way that historical fiction as a genre lately is really appealing to readers who are interested in strong female identified characters telling stories from the past that maybe in our history classes were not given much attention and that through fiction we're really exploring areas of human history that maybe didn't make it into your classroom textbook and experiencing it through through fiction gives you this experience of uh, reading a story. It, it has structure, it has plot, it has movement, the characters develop. And so you get this great aesthetic experience, but people are choosing historical fiction because they do feel like they're learning something. They're learning things about the past. They're learning things about history. And you can always, one thing I like when I'm reading historical fiction, I like and as I think, is that true? And I Google it and I learn something. So I think it, I really enjoy working in the genre of historical fiction. I had a, my bachelor's degree was history and English, and I ended up teaching writing. And it just seems like such a perfect blend of my interests. Thank you so much. Once again, on behalf of the Clock Forum, thank you so much for sharing your time with me and for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was all my pleasure.